Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westrich Robertson. I am the CEO of the organization, but I am also a person living with AI arthritis diseases, plural, maybe single, I don't know, whoever you talk to. And that's kind of fitting with the show, actually. So I have non radiographic axial spondyloarthritis as the primary plus a few others. But I'm not alone. Oh, no, I'm not. I have a big old crowd with me today. And I'm going to start it off by handing it over to Miss Katie to say hello and introduce herself. Hello. Let me introduce myself. Um, so my name is Katie Simons. I am the Senior Programs and Communications Manager here at AR Arthritis. And I am also someone living with an AR Arthritis disease, rheumatoid arthritis, or juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, or now juvenile idiopathic arthritis. So mine isn't more about how many, just how to talk about it. And I live and work out of Metro Detroit, Michigan. And I will pass it over to Eileen to introduce herself. Hi, my name is Eileen Davidson, also known as Chronic Eileen. I live with multiple forms of arthritis, including rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, and osteoarthritis, and a bunch of things that come with that. I go by Chronic Eileen on the internet, and I can be found writing on Cricky Joints. I'll pass it off to Effie. Hi, everyone. I'm Effie, and I'm based in Chicago. I was diagnosed with juvenile arthritis 18. However, some doctors, based on my age, and when I was having symptoms, they sort of regard that as rheumatoid arthritis. So I'm kind of in that limbo, and I'll pass it on to Carrie. Okay. Hi, everyone. I am Carrie, also known as the butterfly from Float Like a Butterfly. I have a variety of both how many of them and how do you determine them and how do you talk about them. But I have a rare inflammatory disease called sarcoidosis, which does include arthritis in there. But I also have RA and Sjogren's and a handful of other question marks too. So I think we've all got so much to say. So let's just kind of get right to it. All right. Well, welcome everyone. I love these these shows where we have several of the co-hosts together. And I'm going to take this opportunity to do an official welcome to Eileen and Carrie as our newest recurring co-hosts. So welcome to that. And you will be hearing a lot more from both of them as we continue with many great episodes moving forward throughout the years and a new addition to the show that I want to take this opportunity to mention, and it's right in our name, AR Arthritis Voices 360. So I like to go 360 when I announce it. And that is very fitting because the 360 part now is meaning we will take any of the comments, any of the topics, any of the conversations that 
end up generating because of what we talk about today and in all of these main episodes that air on the first Sunday of the month can become its own breakout spinoff show. And that could be video, it could be Facebook Live, it could be Twitter, it could be an email blast, it can be anything communication-wise that we can imagine. So it's really exciting, and the point doing that is to make sure all voices are counted always, that everyone has an opportunity to have a seat at the table. So who knows, what will the 360th be today? Hmm, guess we're going to have to find out. So the topic, well, we're going to go back because it is May, and we're going to talk about the word arthritis. And we have visited this on the table quite a few times since we started the show in late 2019. And we choose May to revisit because in the United States, it's Arthritis Awareness Month and in some other countries too. I'm not sure, Eileen, I don't believe it is in Canada. I think it's a different month. It is September for Canada, but I do celebrate as well because you're our neighbors. That's right. (laughs) And then also it is World Autoimmune Autoinflammatory Arthritis Day or World AI Arthritis Day, May 20th, which our organization established way back in 2012 as one of the first programs we ever did. And that day is used to celebrate the differentiation of our arthritis from other arthritises and really bring awareness and education to our community. So in honor of that, we are putting it back on the table. And when I say back on the table, that means it is called a step five. So for those of you who have tuned in our show for a while, you will know that we, in addition to these 360s, we have two versions really of this main show. It's a step two, which means we've identified by listening to patients, there's a big issue in step one of our process. We put it on the table in step two. So we've done that. We'll link you to all of those episodes so that you can check some of those out. We're going to revisit those topics and move forward in a larger conversation about it and a conversation that can lead all the way to what we call step six in our process, and that is resources or solving the problem in some way. So we're going to do all of that. We are amazing. We're going to do all of that in 45 minutes. Holy cow. All right. So... I'm going to turn this over to some of our co-hosts here to start the conversation. And the first thing I thought we'd do by just throwing this on the table and revisiting it is just talking about why you think that awareness about our kind of arthritis, autoimmune arthritis, autoinflammatory arthritis, the type of arthritis associated with these auto diseases, why is education and awareness so important? I think it's important because when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis at 29, I was so shocked that what I was experiencing was even arthritis. I actually made my rheumatologist test me for everything other than RA because I was like, this doesn't make sense. I thought arthritis was just joint pain. So I actually fell victim to the misconceptions of arthritis. And so I think the awareness and the education about there to everyone not only helps people understand that arthritis is a serious disease, but also help them recognize the symptoms so that they start treatment earlier because diseases have better outcomes when treated earliest. And like Eileen said, I was diagnosed three years later than planned. So I was having weird symptoms, chronic fatigue, joint pain. And I was in high school at the time. So doctors were like, oh, you're just an active teen. You have growing pains, stuff like that. But, you know, even with uh, my dad having psoriasis, 
there wasn't anyone in my family or friend group who had any form of arthritis. So even with the knowledge of having a family member with an autoimmune disease, it wasn't really looked upon that I would have arthritis at 18. So, you know, when I went to see my pediatrician, she was like, oh, you're fine. But I kept kind of egging her on. Like I basically went on Google and did what you're not supposed to do and pretty much self-diagnosed myself. And then I went back two years later and I was like, you know, my hands look a little different and it was more something that I could notice. And she was like, yeah, you should go see someone. And ironically, her sister happened to be a rheumatologist, but throughout those two years, I was complaining to her. She didn't find it necessary for me to go even seek an opinion. So we just kind of, you know, left the doctor's office, like everything's fine, you know, so, but it really wasn't. And that's kind of why I feel that it's important to discuss these things because there's a lot of people out there, even with social media and a bunch of like awareness, there are people out there who do not have the answer still, even with modern technology and everything that we have going on. So that's why it's important to sort of talk about these things. And I would just jump off of that with after all of this time and all of this still not having the answers. I mean, that really is just the biggest and most important part of all of this, because the the answers to figuring out what it is that's going on with us when we are feeling pain, not only in our joints, but in all these other places that really don't make a whole lot of sense, but also so many other symptoms that affect so many other parts of our bodies in trying to figure out what it is that's going on and trying to figure out what's wrong. It's so important both for the actual tangible physical medical diagnosis and treatment, but also in how we are perceived and understood by the people around us. And that's the people in our families. That's the people that we work with. That's just general society and kind of how they look at us with arthritis, with disabilities and and all of that. And the more we can raise awareness, the more we can talk about what this is and what it means, the closer we get to that kind of understanding. I was going to add to that kind of more like the general public awareness part of it, the way we talk about it too, because a lot of the times we kind of even ourselves just describe it as arthritis. But when you say rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, or you give it a different name or more of a name, then people are like, oh, that's not just arthritis. That is something else. And then on the day when we start talking about them, you know, more people are like, oh, I've heard of that. I don't really know what that is. So it's the day to learn what this is and understand more about it. And then hopefully people having those weird symptoms, having those unexplained, no diagnosis, know what to ask for, know what to look into, know, you know, what these things actually are. And then hopefully the entire disease group gets more respect and more acknowledgement for what they actually mean to live with them. Wow. You all just had really, really great examples. I have nothing else to add show over. But seriously, what you all really explained very poetically almost was a journey in you went from detection and diagnosis issues to what's going on with me to misunderstandings, which we're going to circle back on as well to public education. We sort of touched on doctor education because that all rolls into it. And we will then lead into also talking today on this overlap, which we said in our introductions is then you have this issue of, well, is the arthritis being ignored? 
Is it being ignored because the doctor doesn't think I have it? Am I too young? Is it being ignored because it's not typically associated with my disease? There's still a lot that goes around the arthritic component that if we understood it, we, meaning family members, meaning doctors, meaning the public, we could really start to see better detection, better diagnosis, earlier treatment, better quality of life. It all equals into this equation just on this word. And then it even equals into better overall health care, regardless of where you live, with regardless of what country, and better outcomes for the healthcare system. Because if we're being treated early and we have better outcomes, then we have less chance of having comorbidities from uncontrolled inflammation. So those are all really, really good points and lead us up right into the heart of this conversation. I wanted to ask one thing, just to clarify, Effie, did you say that others in your family had autoimmune diseases too? Yeah, my dad, he was diagnosed with psoriasis in his early 30s, so before I was born. That was the only person in my immediate family who had any like autoimmune disease. Of course, we've had like extended family and other relatives who've had like other things like diabetes or like MS, but it wasn't in my immediate family. So when you started getting your symptoms, did anybody say, hey, your relative has psoriatic arthritis? This sounds the same. I'm curious because we did not plan this little breakout, but I zeroed in on that because I think it's an important point. So my dad had psoriasis. If he had psoriatic arthritis, that wasn't told to him. I'm sure like he may have later on because I know he did complain of like joint pain. So who knows? But when I was diagnosed, yeah, I mean, like I said, like I was a pretty active team. Like I played sports. I was waking up at 7 a.m. going home at six, you know, so it was different. Doctors just thought that it was growing pains because I was taller and like I was active. And so I thought the fatigue was normal, to be honest, because when you wake up for the bus or you wake up to go to school at 6 a.m., like who isn't going to be tired? So over time, it got worse and worse and worse to the point where it's like I started having inflammation in my wrist. I couldn't partake in gym class. So then it was kind of like over time, I kept complaining to the pediatrician and then she forwarded me to go see a doctor. And then I went for a second opinion. And it was from there on, it kind of led to this journey of being diagnosed. So it was very vague. Yeah. So does anyone, and in Carrie's disease, sarcoidosis is auto-inflammatory. So when we say autoimmune and auto-inflammatory, they're both different sides of the immune system. So it both is derived from the immune system. It's just your auto-inflammatory triggers the innate side, which is what we all have when we're born. So it's, and then the other side with immune is triggered as we start to adapt. It's the adaptive side. And there's more information on that, but I just wanted to clarify because I said autoimmune with Effie and I wanted to clarify with Carrie auto-inflammatory and both of them have genetic components. So just before we we continue on with the importance of this awareness, I want to continue with this thread here because I think it's important. Eileen, Katie, Carrie, and I'll answer it myself when you're done. Did you have history of autoimmune or autoinflammatory in your family? And if I see heads shaking, and if so, did anyone say to you, hey, these run in the family, maybe that's what you have? I'm curious. So my history with, I guess, this topic and part of why I became an advocate 
was my family. I have an aunt who had rheumatoid arthritis 40 years prior to me. She was on my father's side and I never saw her walk more than a few steps. She was always in a wheelchair. She had lots of comorbidities. She had the curled fingers and she was always in pain. And I remember my family members always being like, she's so complaining. She's so lazy. She's so fat, you know, making rude comments about her being overweight And I definitely didn't understand what she was going through then. And my mom's side of the family, they're all cancer survivors. You know, they're older, so they have a way. And so when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, two major things happened to me. One, my aunt passed away the same week I was diagnosed. So I was terrified thinking that the same thing was going to happen to me. And so I became an advocate in her honor. And because since her death, like she wasn't treated with biologics or the medication that have prevented me from being in that wheelchair. And also because my family was very, very dismissive. And they were like, well, we're cancer survivors. It's just arthritis. Like, this is all in your head. You're being dramatic. And like, I haven't spoken to family members in seven years because of that. So that's why I think awareness and advocacy is super important because there's many people that are not getting the support that they truly need. Katie or Carrie, did you have something to add? Yeah, what I was thinking, it was kind of feeding off of, you know, Effie saying that because nobody had that, they didn't, you know, if they had said that, it might have, or, you know, even with your question, in in my family, I guess I should preface it by saying nobody really talked about any medical issues. There was, we knew something, somebody had something if we had to know. Um, when somebody was in the hospital for, you know, with cancer treatments, we knew they had cancer, but that was pretty much it, you know, and, and so years since then, I've had to try and find out and ask, especially in regards to estranged family members and find the person who still talks to that one and say, do you know, did his mother ever have, or did anybody on her side ever have this? And so it's, it was kind of starting out without that background, but nobody that I knew of had autoimmune conditions. But when I was first trying to get a diagnosis and figure out what was going on. And and my journey to diagnosis is, you know, years and years and years, like so many people with these, these kind of overlapping conditions. But, you know, I had my first few years where doctors just completely said everything was in my head. I must just be depressed because they didn't see anything. Once I finally had something visible and that was my big swollen joints, my big swollen ankles, the rashes on my legs, I finally was able to say, hey, look, I'm not making this up. And I had gone to a rheumatologist who did a bunch of tests. And the only positive test result that came back was actually for an autoimmune thyroid condition. But because he saw that I had this thyroid condition, which I didn't even know to complain about or ask about, but because he saw there was autoimmune there, he said, okay, you've probably got some kind of arthritis. It's probably autoimmune. And then there was still just a whole lot of question marks in the air and, and, and rotating misdiagnoses over the years to come after that. But that initial first sign of something positive in blood work that was autoimmune led to at least taking the condition seriously, like acknowledging that there actually was something legitimately going on. Katie? So my grandfather had two autoimmune diseases, uh, narcolepsy and type 1 diabetes. And then after I was diagnosed, I had a cousin who was diagnosed with antiphospholipid syndrome. 
So autoimmune kind of runs in my family. So before you were diagnosed, uh, while you were going through your symptoms, did anyone in the family say, hey, maybe you have what aunt or uncle or grandpa has? Like, did did anybody experience a situation where it's like, hmm, this might be what runs in the family? Because it seems like that didn't happen to me. Nobody knew what was wrong. Some similar to Effie, I was an you know athlete, or you know I was doing sports, I was doing things, and it was you're hurt in the gym. And now after the diagnosis, I'm hearing, oh, well, your grandma had this, and your aunt had this, and your and it's all autoimmune. And I'm asking because I this was like a bulb, an aha moment for me, which I already know is going to become a 360 it because. We've been to so many of these scientific conventions in the last several years actually talking about prevention, believe it or not, and prediction. It's basically studying people they know have a family history plus some biomarkers and then other environmental triggers. Do you smoke? Do you do other things that they know can trigger these diseases? And then they're following these people. And so now I'm thinking... Nobody ever even mentioned to me that it could be. So Eileen, you look like you have you had something you wanted to add to that. Yeah. So no physician ever asked me if I had autoimmune disease history, except for diabetes. And my rheumatoid arthritis started around 24, but it really became apparent to me during my pregnancy. I was very swollen. And I remember during my pregnancy, I had so many different physicians um, passed around and they were like, oh, you have these proteins and you have inflammation. And they weren't really certain why. So they're like, oh, it's probably preeclampsia. And so I had a real whirlwind with my pregnancy and the symptoms that I was experiencing during my pregnancy didn't go away. And I tried to go back to work. So I was working as an esthetician, which, you know, uses a lot of my body. And I would be in the back room after performing a service on a client with massage. And I'd be in tears because I'd be in so much pain. I knew that I had like this appointment to to talk to my family physician, say, I want you to test me for something other than carpal tunnel, because this is more than carpal tunnel. There's so much more going on with me, but I didn't really know what to ask until one of the hairdressers at the salon I was working at was like, have you ever heard of rheumatoid arthritis? I'm like, yeah, I have an aunt who has that. And then I went to Google and I was like, "Uh Oh, I got rheumatoid arthritis. But when I went in and asked for the rheumatoid arthritis blood work test to my family physician, she's like, "Mm, you're a bit young for that. I don't see any visible swelling, maybe fibromyalgia, but I was right. Carrie, did you did you have anything that 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 you wanted to add? Because I know you had quite a journey. So we're going to we're going to kind of move off of this little tangent so much of the family history going into the delay and the diagnosis that that comes along with this. I know a lot of people who have had journeys, but Carrie, you have had a journey and a half (laughs) to get to where you are. And a lot of it had to do with this overlap of symptoms and you know, there was a connector of that arthritis. And we're going to revisit that on prevalence here when we talk about that in a little bit. But can you tell us a little bit about this? Because one of the things we wanted to talk about was overlap and why the right diagnosis matters. So I think your journey is important to lead us into that. Sure. And I think part of what goes along with that journey is what Eileen just mentioned. And I think Effie mentioned earlier about how much, you know, we have to learn ourselves, how much we have to go online, how much we have to figure it out. And granted, 
I will preface anything about going online and trying to find out what's going on with us, you know, making sure, you know, all sources are not created equal. Um, <laughs> and and so reliable source information is important. But even that reliable source information can be difficult to get. So my journey, as I, I started to say before, I initially, I developed some symptoms. I had pain in a variety of different areas. I, you know, had weakness, dizziness, fatigue, a lot of the, you know, kind of intangible, but also invisible symptoms. And I had gotten to a point where this had been going on for for a while. I was in my early 30s at the time. I just knew something wasn't right. And I tried to get answers. You know, growing up, I think, you know, most of us think you get sick, you go to the doctor, they tell you what's wrong, they fix you, have a nice day. And, you know, what I learned was how much that was not the case. So because I had these invisible symptoms, I spent years, literally years, with doctors telling me that I must just be depressed, there was nothing wrong, you know, and just kind of leaving it at that, dismissing me. And and when they tell you that so much, you kind of almost get to a point where you start to question yourself. And you know that you're in pain, and you know that you can't lift your arm, but if they keep on telling you that there's nothing wrong, you just, you know, you kind of almost question your own understanding of yourself. You question your own sanity. You question, you know, all of that. Um, and so when I did get those visible symptoms, I was really, really excited because I could finally say, look, I didn't make this up. Even then, you know, so we they figured it was something autoimmune, some kind of arthritis, but they still didn't know what. And I spent another four years at that point going from misdiagnosis to misdiagnosis with my doctors thinking it's something in that AI arthritis family. And they thought, you know, it, well, it's kind of sort of like RA, but not really. But let's say you have RA. And then they would treat me for RA with methotrexate or Humira and and for anybody who's not familiar with these, it's injections that you have to give yourself. We're not starting with, you know, simple little things like a Tylenol. So we thought it was RA and treat with for that for maybe six months. And I wasn't getting better. So it's probably not that. Oh, maybe it's lupus. And we would kind of go through the same thing and, you know, try a biologic treatment, whether it was injections or infusions for another three months, six months, a year. And I spent time rotating between RA, psoriatic arthritis, lupus, Stills disease, undifferentiated connective tissue disease, which as I understood it basically meant what you have is bad, but it hasn't decided which direction of how bad it's going to get. But it was still not really an answer. And with every one of those, we were trying these treatments and I still wasn't getting better. During that time, and I'm, I'm trying to just sort of cut it short, you know, but during that time, the one thing that was somewhat helpful was prednisone, which is the first line of treatment that we all have a love-hate relationship with because it does so much to help us, but it also does so much to hurt us. And after I had gotten through a point of four years on steroids, plus 100 pounds, plus a whole bunch of other side effects that came from it, I finally said to my doctor, I can't take this anymore. I need to get off of this. And everything got worse and worse and worse. But what also happened was the prednisone was no longer masking whatever else I did have. And that was when they figured out, okay, you actually have this rare disease called sarcoidosis. And they attributed all of the arthritis and basically every other symptom that I had to the sarcoidosis because 
nobody really understood it. And so they didn't know enough to really say what was and what wasn't. And so every time I had a symptom after that, depending on the doctor, either they said everything I possibly had was all from sarcoidosis, or they said nothing I had was from sarcoidosis, but either way it came from them not understanding. And so I had to do you know, the research on my own and I had to figure out where to get information. And even since then, you know, I've, I've had a few more diagnoses kind of added to the mix. And there's always that question of when something comes up, which part is it coming from? And having the doctors who know enough to at least know what questions to ask, even if they don't have the answers yet, that's really, really important. And now it's missing for a lot of us. That will, I'm just going to make one sentence on that. That in itself, another 360 at breakout, I think it's important when you have a rare disease I think it becomes even more challenging because you can't find as much information and the doctors still don't know. They really don't know a lot. So that there's a whole conversation, I think, that needs to happen there. And does anyone else want to add to that? I wanted to mention this because I feel it's important. A couple of years ago, I found out that my great aunt, my grandma's sister, was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in her 70s. And she lives in Greece. So my mom's older sister also has fibromyalgia. But the thing is, like, and I love my culture and my heritage, but there's one thing that I'm sure that a lot of people who, like, are first generation in their country can relate and they have a heavy cultural background that a lot of times we don't talk about our illnesses. It's kind of like, oh, she has this, but we don't talk about it. Because when I had asked my mom, she said that her father told her, you know, when he was younger, he had heard stories about people living with pain. And there was a couple of his extended relatives who were females who'd like be in pain all the time. And one of them passed away. But this was in the 1930s. So back in Greece, there was a lot of things that weren't documented, especially my parents are immigrants. So I'm first born generation American here. So a lot of times it's just like there's a stigma about it too. Like, oh, what are people going to say? Are people going to gossip and stuff like that? which is one thing I don't like, you know, but at the end of the day, that's why I also have started to share my story because there are people in my culture who do not talk about it enough. And that's also why we don't know enough and why things kind of, you know, spiral. Thank you. That is another very important point because it it does tie into this whole idea of if we're not talking to our family members and if this is genetic component, there's sort of that missing gap there on a potential for earlier detection or diagnosis when we're on this mystery journey, if we just knew that. So really, really interesting. And, And I wanted to point out, this is what I was talking about with the process and the way we work at our organization. It's all about communication. And that first step is always patients talking or people affected by these diseases talking. So it could be your supporters or, you know, your family members, et cetera. And we identify these issues and then we move it off and put it out in the public and start talking about it more this is an exact example of what we do in <laughs> our organization is just realizing these kind of missing gaps or connecting the dots based on conversation. We all have to talk. We all have to come to the table. All perspectives and opinions matter because that's how we start to realize the thread on what needs to be solved. So I'm going to circle back here 
it's funny because if you're if you're listening here, you seriously you can't see us, but we all have outlines for the show. And I told everybody before we start, don't fret because we will never follow the outline one, two, three, four. It because natural conversation doesn't happen that way. But we sort of jumped down to number two before, which is the arthritis being dismissed. You're too young, you're too old. That that's something that's that we're seeing happening with people who are. 60s, 70s, 80s even, and now being told, well, it's probably just OA all over your body instead of the damage. And that brought up a conversation we did in in preliminary when we're talking about arthritis. There are different kinds of arthritis and several of us have different kinds. I know I have osteoarthritis in my shoulder and, and a few others on here have mentioned that as well. That can lead to confusion, not only in diagnosis, which we talked about and family members or friends not understanding. Oh, I have that too. No big deal. You know, we, we get that. But what about when you want to be able to differentiate what's happening to you? I'm going to turn this over to Katie first, because Katie, you're the one who brought up this topic and let you sort of go into this issue as a person living with two types of arthritis and, and why this is important for you. So for me, I found out that I guess it was a diagnosis of osteoarthritis after I had hip surgery and I was looking through my surgical notes and my medical files. And I know, and at that point, I'm sure they knew that it was as a result or secondary to the rheumatoid arthritis. But for me, I don't know if that having the hip replacement surgery just kind of like cured or fixed that osteoarthritis in me, or maybe is it in other parts of my body? So there's still kind of like unanswered questions when it comes to the osteo part. Generally speaking, if I'm talking to someone else about my health, I would just say rheumatoid arthritis or juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, depending on the person. And I wouldn't even bring up the osteoarthritis, but personally, I want to know, is there something I should be doing for treatment in the future. If it develops, can I be preventing it? How does it overlap or how do I stay on top of it for the future? I don't want to piggyback after what Katie just said there, because I also live with osteoarthritis. And I find when I was diagnosed with that, I was just kind of told, well, you could try physio and chiropractor. Like there was nothing there. So it actually made me feel really like hopeless at that point because it was my second arthritis diagnosis and it was uh, about a year after my RA diagnosis and it took a while for me to kind of separate what joints were affected by RA and what joints were affected by the OA and then chronic illnesses are like chips you can't just have one you often have many so I also have fibromyalgia and it's been this continuous guessing game. What is causing my pain today? And what am I doing that is triggering this pain? And it's always like, you have to wonder if your medications are stopped working, or is this a new kind of condition that you're dealing with? I know that happened in the beginning of the pandemic with me when I was diagnosed with a rare copper deficiency, because I thought my RA was in a super flare and it actually mimicked symptoms of MS and transverse myelitis. My rheumatologist was like, get to the ER and see a neurologist right now. But it ended up being a very treatable thing. However, I was wondering at that point, like, is this my RA? worsening or is this a whole new condition? I think that's the burning question right there. Is it a new condition or is it part? I know, Carrie, you've talked a little bit about that too. Did you want to expand on on that at all? I mean, that's something that so many of us just kind of 
have to deal with on such a kind of constant basis and you can almost never get to the safe place or, or, or secure position of just saying like, okay, so we know what it is. We know how to deal with it. We're good now. You know, like we can never have that. You know, that's generally my answer when people ask, how are you doing? You know, some of us just automatically say fine right off the top of our head because it's easier than actually getting into it. I know nobody's going to believe me if I just say fine, but my answer is generally, well, you know, there's always something, but I'm dealing with it because there really is always something. And when we have, when people can actually understand that the AI arthritis diseases, and and I'm including sarcoidosis in there, these are multi-system diseases. And so they affect not only our musculoskeletal system, but they can affect our heart. They can affect our lungs. They can affect our skin. They can affect our kidneys. So when we have a new pain, for instance, or when we have something funny happening when I do this, you know, it's, it's really difficult to try and figure out where that's coming from. And that, you know, in addition to the actual physical need to diagnose and treat so that, you know, symptoms don't get worse, but it's also a head trip with us too, because now, you know, we, we don't know, you know, is this a new disease? You know, is this my sarcoidosis, which initially I had sarcoidosis in my lungs and my skin and my joints, and there are systemic things that go along with it. Since then, I've had a lot more problems with neuropathy. Now, is the neuropathy part of the sarcoidosis? Yes. But even that, there's questions about, you know, how much of it. I have a few different kinds of neuropathy. And so some are from the sarcoidosis, some are from other things. When we have, I have osteoarthritis, like we've talked about. It's one of the more recent kinds of arthritis that I've developed. And that's the one that, you know, is considered the wear and tear degenerative on your joints that usually comes with age or weight or overuse. So any doctor in the world will look at me and say, of course, you have osteoarthritis because look at how overweight you are. But the thing is, the reason that I'm the size that I am is because of a side effect of medication. And so many of the things that we take, you know, these the medications can do a whole lot of harm and we have to sort of weigh what is really you know, worth taking a risk for. And it's the kind of thing that for somebody who doesn't have one of these conditions, somebody who doesn't suffer literally every single day, it's it's really hard to imagine why we would ever take a risk like that. I used to think that when I saw commercials and, you know, there's the big long list of these thousand things can go wrong if you take this medication. But the thing is, we take it because it's the best chance we have of even a little bit of improvement. But then when we have a headache that you can get from the treatment for a headache, (laughs) you can get fatigue from a medication that you're taking from fatigue. So it not only makes it hard to diagnose and treat and get relief, but it also is this head trip that just, you know, keeps us spinning. Uh, Yeah, I can completely relate to that one. I've had to try so many different medications in the beginning of my journey with this it was difficult to go through and because you have to wait so long in for them to start working like six months for some of them and then in Canada they make you try 10 different kinds of medications before you can try biologics so yeah that was definitely I couldn't feel a lot of what your frustrations were there so I'm going to take this opportunity before we transition into the next 
bullet point here that we have on our list to talk a little bit about resources. So as I mentioned in the beginning, one of the things about this episode is we are building on past conversations that we've already had. We recognize there's a lot of need for help in the community around these. And I think some of the things that have come out of our conversation here, as I'm taking all of these notes, is one thing is this different types of arthritis. And if you're of different ages, what a different experience. Too young, too old. What if you're 40 to 50 to 60? Like that's the time that OA may be starting more and you could be having your onset. So there's a lot of confusion. So I think there needs to be something out there that at least in the detection portion of it is, does your pain that's in your joints, is it accompanied by fatigue, brain fog, pain elsewhere? Like, is there something else? I don't know what that resource might look like. Does anybody have any ideas? It could be a poster, could, you know, and who, and who would see that? Who do we give that resource to? Are you talking about like creating a resource for patients to be able to identify where their pain is and if it is their disease? Are, could be. Like, okay. <laughs> well, that is definitely something. I think that there needs to be a discussion about how to identify different types of pain, like neuropathy pain, fibromyalgia pain, OA pain, rheumatoid arthritis pain, or, and even the little things that come with it. Like I was recently just diagnosed with bursitis. And then before I had phleblitis and like, there's all these little things that come. I think there needs to be some sort of resource, or at least a blog post of all the common things that come with OA or RA or AI autoimmune diseases Mm -hmm. and identify them so that people can look through them and then they know how to communicate better with their rheumatologist. Cause a lot of these people don't even understand (laughs) I'm laughing because I wrote exactly what you said right here. (laughs) Great Great minds think alike. But yeah, I really do believe that is something that needs to be done because, you know, sometimes a lot I did at first, I always just brush it off. Like, well, this is just RA. And then even if there isn't treatments for them, we can lobby for treatments, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to add to your list there. So I I wrote name your pain as kind of the quote. And the other there, I'm just going to throw this out there because it's important to note some of the spondyloarthritis diseases, enthesitis is primary. Like I have spondyloarthritis. So the feet pain I have is in the tendons and my heels more than it is the joints in my feet. And that we have already identified at A arthritis as an issue in juvenile arthritis that is spondyloarthritis or enthesitis related arthritis because doctors are typically trained to ask about the joint pain. But enthesitis pain might feel similar, but it's actually, if you could identify, oh, it's here, that alone could help spiral it off to a spondyloarthritis rather than a different disease. Not saying you cannot have enthesitis in rheumatoid arthritis or other, because there is research that shows that, but it's a predominant symptom in some of these diseases. So I love that idea of at least starting. And what I really like is doing it as patient-led, patient-reported, and then having the doctors look at it. I like that idea. Anyone want to add to that as we're kind of thinking of what this resource would look like? Go ahead, Carrie. Well, I'm just, I guess not necessarily as much as far as what it would look like, but just why this is so important is because for so many of us, these diagnoses, because they, the conditions affect so many different parts of our bodies 
a lot of doctors, unless they are absolute specialists in those areas, they don't even think to put these things together. So I remember back in 2008, when I was still really, really early and trying to find out what was going on, I talked about all these different issues. And the doctor I saw at the time said, well, I wonder if maybe we should look at your pituitary gland because that affects a whole lot of different things that don't seem to have anything to do with each other. And it was like a rare thing that somebody would actually say, well, these things that scatter in all these different directions could come from one source. And I feel like that line did not lead us to answers, but that type of questioning and that line of thinking is something that is so seriously missing. You know, it's absolutely 100% a big part of why some people with sarcoidosis don't get diagnosed for so long because 90% of people who have sarcoidosis have it in their lungs. So if you don't come in saying, I can't breathe, if you don't come in with that as your primary symptom, they don't even think about it. And it's because Mm. they haven't gotten the education about it. Arthritis is not seen as one of the major symptoms of sarcoidosis. I think the most that I saw was it said up to 30% of people with sarcoidosis have arthritis. Meanwhile, I've been very involved in the sarcoidosis community since my diagnosis in 2015, and I have not met a single person with sarcoidosis who has not said Yes, I have, you know, I also have, it hurts in my back, in my knees, in my ankles, in my joints, every single person. Now, granted, I haven't spoken to every person in the world with sarcoidosis, but every person with sarcoidosis that I have spoken to has arthritis. But even that, there's the question of, is it sarcoidosis causing the arthritis or is it because we also have RA and do we also have RA because they come together more often than we think about. You know, so it just kind of spirals into all these different questions, but those questions need to be asked. And I I love when you told me that, Carrie, that you, as a person living with diseases and communicating with other people living with the diseases, had this aha moment that, wait a minute, that statistic doesn't make sense to me. That's what at AR Arthritis, we believe so strongly that patients' expertise that we have needs to be heard, and that is the perfect example. I think that that itself, we need to do a 360 and, and break out and start to talk to more patients and pull them and ask them, and at least, if nothing else, when we're creating a resource like Name Your Pain or or the symptom chart, so to speak, that could be something not only that patients are like, oh, wait a minute, because if they're Googling sarcoidosis and it says only 30%, they may even ignore the arthritic component, right? The doctors are ignoring that if you say it and it's not coming together. So I definitely think that that's something we should be talking more about, and I'll I'll throw out really quick too, that's an issue also in Stills disease. With Stills disease, which includes adult onset if you're 16 or above, and then under 16 at onset is actually systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis, but it's both called Stills disease, which is an auto-inflammatory arthritis disease. Always the triangle of diagnostic criteria is high spiking fever, rash, arthritis. But recently, in the last few years, research has shown 
that approximately 25% of patients with Stills disease never get arthritis. However, there's also with Stills disease, you can get it once and it never comes back. So what, again, what is the percentage there? If you had it once and you didn't have arthritis, how does that work? But, but again, that's still 75% due, but they used to think it was basically a hundred percent due. So it's, it's just that another proof that's only been a few years of realization. So I think that just talking with other people with these diseases is really important. Before we sort of wrap up and and move to the the last point here, I want to make sure that everybody has been able to have their voice and their perspective and opinion on this point. For the visual, I guess the toolkit in the end, I think having something like a human body, and then you can touch on certain areas of the body, like click on it, and then it can list all of the common comorbidities. And I think that you should start off by doing this, by doing our own research, by setting out some surveys to patients to fill out and find out what their comorbidities are and have them describe how it feels. And we could use those quotes. I think that's a that's a great start. I think that's a, a great idea and it's totally doable. We can use blogs, we can use so, you know social media, we can use email, we can use as as many TikTok, I mean name it. Like there's all different ways that it, with the goal being to reach as many voices and let's see what you all have to say. Persons living with diseases and also if you are a parent of a juvenile and you are working to communicate those symptoms with doctors, it's also important for that to know. So if there's parents who can participate or participate with their child and get how is the child communicating as well, because we all know that's even another layer of struggle. Anything else that anyone wanted to add? I was just going to agree with things that were said, especially you just said how children express how they're in pain and how they can describe it. And if we can have a tool to, you know, build up our vocabulary so that we're all on the same page. And like you said, doctors understanding how we're describing our pain, what that might be or what that might not be. If it's a symptom, if it's the core disease or if it's core morbidity. And then I was also thinking how when I was in physical therapy, my physical therapist would ask, what kind of sensation or pain is it? And I couldn't describe it. I'm like, I've been living with pain for so long. I just, I'm so used to ignoring it that I don't know how to even describe it to someone who's trying to help me out. So I think this tool can be a really good resource. I agree. I also think it's important to say like, sometimes we don't ignore it, which we do, but also you live with it for so long that it becomes a normal part of you. So when you're trying to explain it, it's like, I don't even know how to explain it anymore because I'm so used to it too. What a great point. I I remember explaining that to somebody when I first came. So I, let's see, how old am I now? So we're about 12 years in. And when I first was explaining it, I felt like I was able to identify the areas a lot more because it was new. It was like, oh, it felt like my, I stubbed my toe or something. It was because to me, the pain feels like an injury which might be why people say, oh, you injured yourself at the gym or something, but you didn't injure yourself and forget 25 times. I mean, that just didn't happen. As time went on and people would say, how are you feeling? I realized that I would start saying, oh, I'm pretty okay. Way more than I did when I, my body was adjusting. And then I would find myself going, hold on a second. I'd sit there. Oh yeah. My feet hurt. 
oh, yep, my fingers hurt. Like I, it would, I, because it's so used to it. It's it's normal now. It's my normal, and like I can do that right now. I'm like, oh yeah, my feet do hurt. Yep, they sure do. <laughs> right now, so that's a great point. The longer you live with it, you may not communicate the same. I have to thank my rheumatologist for that because I saw her last week. And so I've been in a flare, but I told her, I'm like, my pain is like a zero out of 10. So I'm like, I'm not in pain at all. But like, if you were look to look at my joints, it's like, okay, you need something right now. So she was like, and that's the, the worst thing. It's like when people are not in pain, but they're like really inflamed, they tend to like, not, not in my case, but in other people's case, they may not like do anything about it, you know? Wow. So interesting. That whole, and then the whole pain threshold yeah. and how different it, you can't, I mean, I know Eileen, you've seen this, I'm sure in Canada, just different studies on pain and how do you measure pain? It's, it's one of those questions yeah. that. I don't like the way that they have the, when you go to your rheumatologist and they have like this scale, I don't like that because pain adjusts from minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, month to month. And I don't know about you, but every time, by the time I get in to see a doctor talk about it, it's gone. <laughs> so it's like, uh, yeah, that's why I'm really passionate about tracking my symptoms because I found that has really helped me have a deeper understanding of my different types of pain and what triggers my pain and how to self-manage my pain. And what do you use to track? I use a program called Opress by Arthritis Research Canada, and it involves a Fitbit. So I track in my symptoms to help me understand how my period affects my rheumatoid arthritis. It's helped me kind of actually see like how different treatments are actually working for me because my fatigue and my pain would go lower. My sleep would improve. I can do more steps in the day. It's helped me understand when I am starting to get actually get sicker and worse because I can see the you know, it's visualizations of my symptoms is when you track your health. And that kind of makes you sort of see those little things because I'm so used to being in pain. But when I track it throughout the day or significant things that happen to me, I can see when it increases. And that helps me communicate better with my doctor. Because, yeah, I do agree. Like, I'm so used to being in pain. Sometimes I don't even really realize I might be in be doing worse off. And I can see that with tracking my health with like, is my sleep getting worse? Is my mood getting worse? Am I not able to do as much in the day? I, I actually want to ask Eileen because I completely understand and a hundred percent agree that tracking can be so incredibly helpful in, you know, figuring things out and, and adjusting what you do accordingly to get the kind of results that you want. However, if there's always something I mean, literally always, like I remember a brief moment on my husband's birthday in 2011 that I had a brief moment when I was not in pain yeah. and that's how rare it was and that's how long ago it was. I once had a doctor just for headaches ask me to try and track when I had a headache, what I was doing, if I had eaten or not eaten. And I literally, before I would finish writing out the sentence of this is the kind of pain I'm having in this part of my head because I just, there was something else. So how do you accurately and, and adequately track your symptoms to understand things like that and still exist outside of just tracking your symptoms? Well, I've gotten to the point right now where I don't even need to actually fully track. It's become second nature to me. So I typically every morning write it down in my, I have an agenda and I put little notes in there. And because I've done the tracking, I kind of have been able to figure out 
how to work my schedule around when I know I'm going to flare. But yeah, like it's difficult because if you live with multiple conditions, you're going to always be in pain. So this is, I always say like the arthritic rule of thumb, what works for one may not work for another. Well, that might help with my rheumatoid arthritis. It might not help with another condition like migraines. Good point. So one more question before we wrap up that I wanted to throw out to everyone because the, the people sitting here at the table, we are all pretty active in online community or talking to other people. And we did talk about the arthritic component and the prevalence in different diseases. And then there are also people who talk about, well, my arthritis isn't what bothers me. So there's a whole other group of people that talk about, well, the arthritis isn't even bad. It's my fatigue and my auto features. And they get very frustrated when the doctor just focuses on joints. I know I'll just throw out myself that I've just seen so many people dismiss the arthritis altogether and say, well, that's not even really part of what I have, but it is a clinical feature and it is a diagnostic feature, even though it may not happen. So I just wanted to know what you all see or hear when it comes to that, because it, it's an, it's a part of our diseases, whether, whether it's active or not, just like I said, in stills, it may never even show up, but I just think it's important to talk about briefly because if we're talking about this chart and diagnostic criteria, you know, what are people saying? And is it, a matter of it's early on in their disease or later on in their disease that you're hearing them dismiss the arthritis. Does anyone want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I think a couple things. I think people need to take arthritis a lot more serious. They need to understand it's a lot more than just joint pain. They need to understand that there's over 200 conditions and they're discovering more and more different types and different things about these conditions all the time. So I think it's important to not necessarily just ignore the joint pain, because the joint pain can be causing another symptom to be highlighted, especially like fatigue. And they also might need to realize that maybe it's not the arthritis that's causing fatigue. could be another comorbidity, say like my copper deficiency caused me a lot of fatigue. Vitamin deficiencies can cause a lot of fatigue. And then anxiety and depression, those are very, very common with people with different types of arthritis. It took me an occupational therapist to really actually figure out one day when she said to me, well, your fatigue is probably being mostly caused by fibromyalgia and depression. And I was like, but I had always been blaming it on RA. I didn't really like clue in to explore the other conditions and see how they can be mimicking symptoms as well. I'm just going to, again, agree. It's basically, even though if the arthritis might not be your biggest complaint or your biggest concern, it's still part of the bigger picture. It still can overlap and play into other things and treating something else might help the arthritis or vice versa. So it's not something just to be ignored. It's still part of the picture. Yeah. And I think that's important to also bring up like some osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis often comes before heart disease, diabetes, and those things. And so it's really important to understand the severity of osteoarthritis along with the inflammatory types as well, because osteoarthritis, well, many people talk about how their heart disease or their diabetes is so bad, but why did they get that in the first place? How did they get there? A lot of the times they actually see OA first. Good point. Especially when we're talking about comorbidities. 
mm-hmm. and and how this 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 all runs runs together. Okay, well, we have hit our time, and I think we've talked about some really important points and definitely built on the episodes that we put on the table before. So we'll make sure that we have a list of all of those previous conversations as well. And we have started a tool, at least the the brainstorming section of that. And we'll definitely put that out as well for all of you to please weigh in. What are your ideas? How do you think we should build this out? And we'll start with something brainstorming wise. And then together, Hopefully, we'll be able to come up with some resources that can help with detection, with diagnosis, with management, with understanding your diseases, potential comorbidities as your disease journey goes. All very, very important. It's a big task. Not going to be able to do it overnight, but it, it, that's how we have to start it, right? But you put it on the table and start the conversation and, and get that going. I think we've also identified a few different spinoffs that we can do from the show, including understanding and the communication of, is this in my family? And do we even talk about that? That's really important when there's all this research that's happening right now that is identifying the family relationship. And that could lead to predetermining if you may be a candidate so that how do we address that barrier? Families aren't even talking in the first place. How do we get to that level of prevention or predetermining the issue of rare disease. And that becomes even a bigger conversation when you're talking to your doctors and how do you navigate that challenge on top, which might be, Carrie, why you had such a convoluted journey, right? Because there was just even 10 times more question marks. So many things that that we can build on. So I have to thank all of you for coming to the table and talking today because that's how we have come up with so much great information to continue the conversation and build on. I'm going to go around real quick and um, to Carrie and Effie and Eileen and ask you to tell everybody where they can find you because you are all active advocates in the community. So let's start with Carrie. Okay. So again, I am usually known as Butterfly from Float Like a Butterfly. The one thing I will note is that if you're going to look for me online, the spelling is B-U-T-T-A-H-F-L-Y because, hey, I'm from New York. It's like butter. Um, That's how we say it. That's how we spell it. (laughs) But you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Butterfly K. On Facebook, it's Float Like a Butterfly. And I'm all around. All right. Thank you. Hey, Effie, where can they find you? Yeah, you guys can find me on Instagram and Twitter, mostly at Rising Above RA. And I'm on YouTube, RA and myself, but I may be changing that name. So, but you can find me still on there. And then I have a blog, risingaboveRA.com. Great. And Eileen, aka Chronic Eileen. <laughs> well, you can find me on the internet by looking up Chronic Eileen. I have a blog, I have Instagram, I have Facebook, I have Twitter. And I'm really excited to now be part of a podcast. I can also be found writing for Creaky Joints, Helpline, and Arthritis Research Canada, as I'm a member of their patient advisory board. Great. And you can find Katie and I. I was just going to say, <laughs> don't forget about us. Um, I won't. Go. You want to you say it, Katie? Sure. Take it away. Um, usually, uh, if you just search ISAI Arthritis, you can find us. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and now on TikTok as well. Make sure to follow us and participate in World AR Arthritis Day on May 20th. 
Each and every year. Oh, that's right. See, I almost forgot about that. And we also on Facebook have a breakout group on that IFAI Arthritis official org page just for this talk show. So if you are on Facebook, like that group, join that group, and all of us will be checking in and we'll do a post on this and all of the other shows. Speaking of all of the other shows, you can find all 100 plus what? So many. A hundred plus of our shows at AIarthritis.org backslash talk show. And we are going to be having a brand new website too, but we'll definitely link that to the website, which is going to be so interactive and cool in itself. And while you're on our website, we ask that if you love the show, please consider a donation. Tip the team, as we like to say, because we definitely need support to be able to continue what we do. And if you love the show, please consider a donation. Other than that, the conversation never stops because we leave the table. Matter of fact, we invite all of you to join it. So we ask you, please, whether it's social media, whether it's emailing us at, I don't even know, what is it, Katie? Talk show now? We changed it three times. <laughs> I would say either hello at AI arthritis or info, I-N-F-O at AI arthritis or Tiffany or Katie at AI arthritis. You can find us so many ways, so many places. All right. So you could, you could email us, you can message us, you can tell us your opinions and perspectives on this. So just remember, we need everyone's perspectives and opinions in order to change the stories of tomorrow. So pull up your seat and we're waiting for you at the table. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 